Welcome to Global Stage, a podcast highlighting academic and policy-oriented international research on democracy and human development. Global Stage is a production of the Kellogg Institute for International Studies, part of the Keough School of Global Affairs at the University of Notre Dame. Today, uh, Juan Vargas and me, Aitor Valdezogo, are interviewing Karen Graubart, Associate Professor of History at the University of Notre Dame, specializing in race, gender, and law in colonial Latin America and the Iberian Atlantic. She has accepted an invitation to our podcast to talk about her last book, Republics of Difference, Religious and Racial Self-Governance in the Spanish Atlantic World, published last summer by Oxford University Press. Thank you, Karen, for joining us today. Thank you for the invitation. So just to introduce the topic of your book, let's make an exercise of imagination and time traveling. It's 10 a.m. in Lima's main square, Christmas Eve, 1613. Limeños are doing their last minute shopping for the holiday. Tell us, Karen, what will we see in the streets of Lima? Thank you. Thank you for asking me about this work and for this invitation. Lima, like most Spanish colonial cities, was founded on a central and ceremonial plaza, the Plaza de Armas today. It was a, a reused indigenous plaza that they then built around, including uh, large buildings like the cathedral, the archbishop's palace, the viceroy's residence and offices, the municipal governance offices, a jail, things like that. So that was intended to be the very center of authority for the Spanish city, this new Spanish city. But that said, it was also the center of the economic life of the city. And so the first floors of many of those buildings that were on the plaza had shops and they were nice shops. They would have Spanish men and women working in them, selling clothing or other items to the local population. But in the porticos that were right out outside those shops would be more ambulatory vendors, ambulantes, who might set up their space to sell local produce, to sell other types of goods, uh, textiles, clothing. And then the center of the plaza itself would also become a market many days. And indigenous and black women mostly would set up their little stalls where they would sell their goods. And so the very ceremonial center of the city was also the economic heart of the city. And it was very much a space that was provisioned by non-Spaniards, by enslaved black people, by free black people, by indigenous men and women who might live in the valleys around the city or in the poor parts of the city. And as you radiated out from that space and you went continued your pre-holiday shopping, and I'm not entirely sure what Christmas shopping looked like <laughs> in 1613, but you would move out from that space where you would buy your fruits and vegetables and meats and cooked goods and things like that, you would see streets full of, of artisan workshops and all the shoemakers on one block and all the tailors on another block. And you could go into those spaces and purchase your beautiful garments and take them to a tailor on another street that would make you beautiful outfits for the holidays. And so the city was really dominated by occupational spaces to some degree. But there were also residential spaces throughout that uh, ceremonial center, which were mostly these large casonas, these beautiful houses that the elite lived in. 
And those would be multi-story houses with balconies where women could sit and, and look out on the, the streets below them. But they were also very multiracial because their household staff would all be indigenous and black men and women as well. And those are the people who go out into the streets for the elites to purchase most of their daily necessities. If you went even further than that, you would probably start to find poor housing. You would find the houses of Spaniards that had fallen upon hard times and were now being segmented and rented out to lots of different people. And so the city was very integrated and very organic in a certain sense, but it was intended to assert a sort of uh, power and authority. Wow, Karen, that's fascinating. Thank you very much for that answer. It really helps us situate ourselves as we try to imagine what this would have been like in the 16th century. But you know, to follow up and to dive into the book a bit more, the title of the book is Republics of Difference, and we would like to ask you, how would you define this Republics of Difference? What was their function, and what does the term republic mean in this context? Yeah, so it's a confusing word in some ways, right, for a modern reader, because we think of republics as states, basically. In the early modern and late medieval worlds, many people formed republics, so guilds were considered republics. They were groups of people who had something in common, who were governed themselves with their own elected officials, who created regulations for themselves. And so they were small jurisdictions which were had a relationship to other institutions, the crown, obviously, municipal authorities, the church, but the republic was really any unit that was recognized as self-governing in some sense like that. And so in the early modern world, lots of groups were given this opportunity to self-govern as a way to take away that problem from higher authorities. And so in Spain, Muslim and Jews were recognized as self-governing communities, which had their own judges, they had their own rules, their own authorities. They took care of the civil life of the community while they were still, of course, subject to the crown and to other officials. In the New World, indigenous people were also given the semi-autonomy, where they were intended to collect their own taxes from one another, to establish their own rules for daily life, while they were also, obviously, vassals of the king, and they were under the authority of the Catholic Church, while Muslims and Jews were not. There's a fourth community that I study throughout the book that's important, which is people of African descent, because in Seville, where sub-Saharan Africans were starting to become the majority of enslaved people in the city, it was a pretty large segment of the city by, say, 1500, they were given their own alcalde de los negros, their own authority figure who was himself black, and his job was to help govern them according to their whatever they understood their legal system to be and to interact with other authority groups on their behalf, including, for example, working with their masters, uh, negotiating problems like that. In Lima, in, in the New World in general, blacks were not given, for the most part, access 
access to self-governance for a variety of reasons that I talk about in the book that have to do with their position as as an enslaved population in a a multi-ethnic world. And so they do not form a self-governing community, which actually creates all sorts of problems because one of the benefits of self-governance is that you collect your taxes for the crown and he doesn't have to figure out how to get taxes from you. And of course, in 1573, when blacks are taxed by the crown in the new world, there's literally nobody to collect the taxes. And so tax collection is largely unenforced there. So talking about the methodology of your book, space seems to play a central role, right? You include several maps elaborated with a GIS software to show the distribution of Muslims and Jews in Seville and indigenous and black people in Lima. So what do these maps uncover? What are you trying to do with these maps? So the maps are really, were very important to the process of writing the book. I created the maps by creating data. I collated large amounts of data. In Seville, I used a list of times that Muslims and Jews approached notaries in the city for all sorts of, of reasons, and then gave their occupation, mentioned their family members, etc. And so I turned that into a large database for 15th century Seville. And then in Lima, I have a census from 1613, which maps the city in terms of its indigenous population. And so what I was able to do with both of those is to take contemporary maps of the period and place those that information on the map through a GIS software. And what that told me was a whole bunch of questions that I could ask. And so one of the things that people believe about places like Lima and Seville is that they were segregated. People believe, because the, the law suggested that they should be segregated and that Muslims and Jews should live in their own towns, indigenous people should live in their own pueblos, and so there's a thought that people just simply obeyed this. But when I took those that data and placed them on the maps, what I saw was that that's actually not true at all. And in fact, what's true is much more interesting. That is that Muslims and Jews, for example, in Seville, organized themselves, lived according to their occupations, their family networks, their socioeconomic status. In fact, middling Jewish artisans might well want to live in the part of town that's known as the the Jewish quarter, because it was a space that gave them authority. But poor Jewish tailors would not. They would be more likely to live among Christian tailors and Muslim tailors. And Muslim construction workers, which was the probably the, the largest portion of the population, of Muslim population, would live in the poorer sectors of the city, whereas Muslims with artisanal backgrounds, they would live in the nicer parts of town, but they would live alongside other say, ceramicists or shoemakers. And so the city then starts to look very different from this notion of, of a city segregated by belief system. In Lima, it's even more interesting, as I tried to suggest when we walk through the city at the very beginning of the podcast, every household has indigenous and black people in it for the most part, because every artisan, every Spanish artisan has apprentices and has helpers, and those would normally be indigenous and black people. And every wealthy household has indigenous and black domestic workers and servants and slaves. And so the mapping allowed me to think about not simply to undermine the idea that this is a city that's segregated spatially, but to ask what are the organic ways that people actually lived and what did that tell us about everyday life for those people? Mm, that's incredible. And 
Karen, just to go back a little bit, but earlier you were talking about the considerable black population in, in Seville. And for some people, this, it might be surprising that there was this considerable population, that they even had this Al-Qaeda Negros that was enforcing this self-governance, but at the same time being subject to the Spanish law. And so you discuss and, and you mentioned how the existence of this republic for Negros took place in Seville, and it was a thing in Iberia, but it failed to become and be constituted in Lima. Why do you think people from African descent have these different circumstances on both locations? So that's great. So let me start with Seville, right? Because Seville is a city that has all of the Spanish kingdoms have slavery in the medieval period. And slavery was mostly for Muslims or from Eastern Europeans, um, or people who were not Christian and were part of a kind of a Mediterranean trade and ransoming structure. In the early 1400s, Portuguese and Spanish merchants start going to the West African coast, and they start engaging in the slave trade there, which to some degree had already existed. And they start purchasing or even simply capturing people and bringing them to Europe to be in the markets. And the two largest markets for African slaves became Seville and Lisbon. And so those two cities have very large black populations very early. And by the 1450s, it's a pretty significant population. And it's so significant that the Catholic Church starts to dedicate confraternities, that is, religious groups that go to mass together and process together on holy days and we create a kind of a mutual aid society for one another in the case of, of death or sickness. And so the Catholic Church assigns or creates space for Black Catholics to have their own confraternity and in their own hospital sometime in the late 14th or early 15th century. And at the same time, that's when the crown establishes this alcalde, this alcalde de los negros, who is probably the head of the confraternity. We're not 100% sure about how this all developed, but his job is probably to ensure that on festival days, there aren't difficulties, right? That to manage the population, and also to manage the Spanish Catholic reaction to the population because there was discrimination and concern. And so you start to see concerns raised about Black people in groups, and the Alcalde de los Negros is one attempt to solve that. In the New World, there are very swiftly ordinances against having Black people in large groups, in part because of riots and rebellions that emerge that are often indigenous, but sometimes led by enslaved Black people in the early years, and often together. And so you start to see rules like in Lima in the 1540s that say you can't have more than five Black people together in any place, that the confraternities can't meet by themselves. They have to have Spaniards present. And my guess is that that is why they were not offered the opportunity to self-govern, because they were seen as a population that had to be managed and not able to work autonomously. And since there was no tribute, they didn't have to pay taxes until the late 16th century, there was no real reason to allow that. In the late 16th century, with the introduction of tribute and the problem of how to get Black people to pay, they start to try to figure out other ways. They create guilds for mulatos and negros. They try to identify people who might be able to force them to labor in public or to, to pay taxes. And none of those really function. And so they basically
basically give up on them. The black people form their own confraternities and form their own communities of interest where they govern themselves, but they don't do it on behalf of the crown. Right. That's awesome. So thinking about our listeners that probably most of them haven't read the book yet, it's amazing the amount of archival work you've done to write this book. So we wanted to talk a little bit about like the historical profession. And you bring to life dozens of individuals involved in different types of transactions, bringing the archive to the reader and showing at the same time the challenges that you faced doing your research. So could you please elaborate what you mean by finding missing archives? Yeah, so the intention of the book was to try and get inside these republics, to try and think about how indigenous, black, uh, Muslim, Jewish people experienced this world that they lived in. The problem is that if they did keep records, and they probably did, those records are gone. They're dispersed, they're destroyed. Little bits and fragments of them exist, but not very much. And so one of the problems I set for myself was to think about how one could recreate those archives intellectually with imagination, but with an attention to the historical record. And so, for example, I know that Muslims and Jews had some sort of civil jurisdiction in Seville and that their own judges judged whatever came up before them, if it wasn't as long as it wasn't a criminal complaint, which would have been dealt with by Catholic authorities. But I don't know what the content of that would have been. I do know that they existed because there is a receipt in the archives from a Muslim judge who sends a messenger, a Christian messenger, to Granada from Sevilla to send some records from a case that he's working on and to get an opinion back from the judge because he himself, for whatever reason, didn't feel that he could judge the case. Now, I don't have the content of that, but I do know from that one little receipt that this was a political space where they could actually have these conversations and resolve their problems. I can partly imagine what those look like by thinking about what's not in the archives. And so, for example, a lot of my work in Lima comes out of wills. All Christians or most Christians made a will on their deathbed because they wanted to ensure that their soul would move uh, through purgatory. And they did this by going to a notary and trying to dredge up every last penny that they could find, people who owed them a few pesos in the street or, or wherever, and to list all the clothing they had on their body, basically, to be auctioned off. And then they could use that to pay for masses for their soul or for their family's souls, etc. But, of course, in Seville, there are no Muslim or Jewish wills in the archives because the will was a Catholic instrument. And so they would not go to a Catholic notary and ask the notary to take down their last their last wishes. They would instead do that internally. And so those documents are gone, but we know something about how Jews and Muslims in the period understood property division, things like that. And so what I try to do is sort of pose this sort of question to myself is, what would these documents look like if we found them? What are the issues that are of utmost concern to Muslims and Jews that can't be resolved by a Catholic judge. And then in the New World, we know that indigenous communities 
kept records of their own cabildos, their own councils, town councils, their own meetings. But we have very few um, examples of that documentation. There is some documentation from Mexican communities in Mexican indigenous languages. But in Peru, there's very little of that. And so one of the things that I did was I tried to use, for example, wills and litigation that indigenous people participated in to think about what are the patterns that they might have used for themselves when they met together to try and resolve their problems. There are also cases where I looked at where communities had complaints about one another, and they would go to the the Spanish officials, and the Spanish officials would say, no, that's actually not our job. Like, our job is murder, or our job is, you know, high crimes. This is an internal dispute. You have to resolve it. And that kind of litigation allows me to see the tensions that are developing in these communities and how they might have been resolved. And so I think about that as sort of imagining or finding these missing archives. But as you say, it required about 15 years of archival work on a number of continents and just a lot of thinking and talking to other scholars and to just try and imagine what what's missing and, and how I could fill in those blanks. Wow, Karen, that's incredible. So it was a a long time producing this book. This book took uh, some time in the making. And I mean, you just described one of the biggest challenges that was the lack of archival sources that could help you figure out these things in a better way. But were there other challenges that you faced doing this research about multiple and overlapping jurisdictions? So, yeah, there are obviously a lot of challenges. One challenge was just thinking that these jurisdictions existed at all. And one of the real benefits of doing this work across Spain and Peru is that I was able to look at the way that Spanish medievalists ask questions about the communities they study and then export those questions to the Peruvian historians who ask really different types of questions and have different sorts of expectations. There was a lot of conversations with academics in both these literatures just to try to thinking about how they think about the people that they're studying and whether I could borrow from one literature to the other. There were also, I mean, just challenges like getting into all these archives and financing research in these places. And I should take this moment to thank the Kellogg Institute which was one of the reasons I was able to do this work for the past, say, 10 years, because they funded many, many trips to Spain and to Peru. I also had a lot of support from the National Endowment for the Humanities and the ACLS and other important sites of funding, which allowed me to have time and space to think about this. The biggest challenge for me probably was learning legal history, in a sense, which is not my field, it was not my field. And just to understand what a jurisdiction is and what it, how people lived in a world where they might move through lots of different venues to resolve their everyday problems. 
which we probably do all the time ourselves. We think if we have a, a problem, we might take it to our mayor or city council. We might take it to our neighborhood. We might take it to small claims court. We might take it to the police. There are lots of different ways that one can resolve all sorts of problems. And it's important to understand that of people in the 1600s also had the same ability to think about themselves as parts of lots of different communities where they can resolve their questions. So to wrap up, your book helps us rethink the survival of indigenous languages, cultural practices, and political systems across the Americas. So how does Republics of Difference contribute to understanding these continuities? Yeah, so one of the most striking aspects of Latin America is the number of indigenous languages that still exist, the numbers of Black communities, of indigenous communities that continue to see themselves as vibrant spaces, as organic cultures, and as political entities. And that existence is despite a long period of colonization by Spain, as well as uh, long periods of dominance by non-Indigenous and non-Black elites in the modern period. What I'm arguing in this book is not that Indigenous people have traditions that began in the pre-Hispanic years and that operated continuously to the present, but that the ways that they adapted to all these different sets of political um, institutions and legal institutions create the possibility for their continued existence as organic communities. And so when we see the existence of language groups into the modern world, thinking of, of places like Mexico and Guatemala, those language groups are there because they have adapted for hundreds of years to their relationship to imperial and other structures that uh, sought to silo them, to, to create, to, to give them space, but marginal space where they could be a source of revenue and income and labor, but not really part of the political system. And those communities continued to change and to think and to adapt through all of that, sometimes absorbing the way that the dominant society thought about them. One of the things I think about is land tenure, where indigenous communities might have had their own practices of land tenure before colonization, but then as colonial forces come in and basically assign them communal land, they have to then figure out how, as a group, they want to deal with those communal units as well as with individual units, and they produce senses of themselves as people with land tenure. And then if we look at the modern ejido in, in Mexico, that is the child of this moment where indigenous communities were basically characterized as communities with communal land, but they adapted to the the use of that of that land in their own way and into the modern world where they now today claim rights as political actors as well as owners of these community lands. So what I want to argue throughout is that communities continue to change, but that the existence of the Republic actually creates a space for them to think about what that change is for them, to produce a sense of justice for their own people, to remake their identity and their culture in ways that still exist today. 
Oh, thank you very much, Karen. That was an incredible answer. And this was an incredible interview. I am sure that all of the audience is going to run and buy Republics of Difference after this. And we recommend this book. Thank you very much, Karen, again for the interview. And Aitor. So yeah, just what just Juan said. Thank you for coming here. I think it was like a very insightful interview. And I think you, we touched many of the main ideas of your book. So... Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you for reading it and for thinking about it with me. It's lovely to have this sort of conversation with you all. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Global Stage, produced by the Kellogg Institute for International Studies. Listen to other episodes here or wherever you get your podcasts. Global Stage also can be found online at kellogg.nd.edu or by asking your smart speaker to play Global Stage. Global Stage.